Do you know the difference between a problem to solve and a polarity to manage? Stay tuned to learn more about polarity management. Hi, Shannon Waller here, and welcome to the Team Success Podcast, but a very special episode of the Team Success Podcast. And this is an author interview with someone that I have known since I was a teenager, and maybe even younger, actually. His name is Dr. Barry Johnson, and he has, as I was describing him to a colleague this morning, a massive heart and an incredible mind. So I'm ecstatic that you actually get to benefit from that. In particular, we're going to talk about a concept, a mindset, a practice a strategy, a tool for, well, I'm going to let him describe that. But the book that he wrote first, and he's actually working on a second book right now, it's called Polarity Management. If you have ever been entrenched in a controversy with someone where you seemed like you were polarized and at opposite ends of the conversation and you could not find a way to meet in the middle, polarity management is just a brilliant solution and allows each person really to kind of appreciate the other person's point of view and come to not a compromise, but really a way to honor both perspectives. So Barry, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm thrilled that my audience gets to know you and it's nice to see you again. Well, thanks for inviting me. (laughs) <laughs> so I haven't given really a whole lot of background other than the fact that we've known each other for a very long time. So what should people know about you in terms of where this comes from? What's your passion has been for the last few decades? Well, I guess the first thing is that from age 13 to 26, I thought I was going to be a Lutheran minister. Okay. So I ended up going to a seminary in New York City, Union Seminary, after I graduated from college, still planning to be a Lutheran minister. But as a part of that process, I, between college and actually being in seminary, I had what was called a secular internship in East Harlem. Mm-hmm. So I was living in East Harlem. I lived there for five years. And at that time, I was just trying to appreciate what is life like for poor people, people of color in the United States, because I was raised in a small town in northern Wisconsin. And this moved me very much to experience what life was like. I was also studying both domestic policy and foreign policy as a part of this secular internship, that was what it was called, because we had to have a secular job. And there were a small group of us who were living in East Harlem and meeting a couple nights a week. I got involved in studying the war in Vietnam, and I ended up working with clergy and lady concerned about Vietnam and had a chance to work with a number of religious leaders, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and others. So in this process, I became more and more concerned about spending my time protesting things I didn't like, like the war in Vietnam or like racial injustice in the country. And I thought, I need to understand more completely how we get into these wars, what has been a root cause of racism and poverty, and trying to understand those root causes. And I shifted from seminary into that pursuit. And that was in 1969. Mm -hmm. So that was 50 years ago. My desire was to understand why we get ourselves in trouble, how we can be so cruel to each other, just trying to understand how that works in a way that isn't blaming or accusing anybody. It's like, how did we get that way with each other? And in that process, I decided I needed to start with myself and understand change. I wanted to become an effective change agent. And I wanted to look at myself in terms of change first. So I went into a two-year training program in Gestalt Psychology. And it was while I was in that two-year training program, I was also involved with a program with Jack Gibb that you're familiar with around trust development and trust enhancement. 
So I had three real influences. One is the whole theological focus. Another was the focus of Gestalt psychology. And the third was trust theory. Mm -hmm. As I was completing my two years as a Gestalt therapist, I was working at the time, I was running a residential treatment program for heroin addicts. And at night, I was finishing my clinicals by seeing clients one-on-one. And the first polarity map actually emerged in a one-on-one session with an individual person. And we got up out of our two chairs and started moving around on the floor. And that emerged as the first polarity map. So that was 1975. Wow. So I've been learning about and learning with others about how to see and leverage polarities ever since. Wow, that's amazing. And when did you write your book, the first book? I wrote my first book in 92 called Polarity Management, Identifying and Leveraging Unsolvable Problems. And then I co-wrote a book on leveraging polarities in congregations. And then the book that I'm writing right now is an effort to just update people and share what we've been learning since that first book came out in 92. Great. And that's the book that when I first approached you to interview you on polarity management, you're like, and you might want to check out what I'm writing now, (laughs) which was really exciting and really provides just an incredible amount of depth beyond what I even knew. So thank you. That's a brilliant introduction. And you have, for if this is important to anyone, your doctorate as well. And this has been a lifelong passion and work. And I just have always appreciated the heartfeltness as along with the intelligence that you bring to everything that you do. So, Oh, thank you. I'm very excited to share this. So let's describe so everyone can know what the heck we're talking about. What exactly is a polarity map? We don't have the, <laughs> the added benefit of visuals today. Yeah. But let's try and draw a picture in people's minds about what it looks like. And I know what I draw in the workshops when I'm modeling it for people. Mm-hmm. But what does a polarity map look like? Well, I think it's helpful to think of a polarity map as an energy system. And it's an energy system between two poles of an interdependent pair, like inhaling and exhaling, or activity and rest, or in our lives, we manage the tension between work and home, or in teams, do we focus on the individual team member and his or her uniqueness and support them as an individual? And how do we also support the team as an integrated unit? So these tensions are between these interdependent pairs. Mm -hmm. In the literature, they're also called dilemma or paradox. So if people have read about any of those things, all of us are essentially talking about the same thing. It's as ancient as 4,000 years ago with yin and yang energy, actually 6,000 years ago with yin and yang energy. So it's a very ancient notion that there's these interdependencies in life. And the most elemental form of interdependency has two elements to it. So you can have interdependencies of three or more, which I call multarities, but the most basic one to get a handle on is the interdependent pair. Mm -hmm. And the way we picture it is if you imagine an infinity loop, it looks like a figure eight laid on its side. And so this infinity loop, if you just take your finger and follow the energy, and you go from the downside of one part of the loop to the upside of the other side of the loop, and then follow it down to the downside of that second side and back up. So if you follow that infinity eight with your finger, you can just imagine how this energy flows. And inside the two loops of the eight would be the two poles. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you put activity and rest in those two poles, and you had this energy system now flowing around it, what happens is, if you can imagine this, if you had activity in the left pole, When you get up in the morning having rested, you would be in the bottom right part of this picture, and you'd move 
the pole would go up above activity. And that side of the energy that goes above activity, that's where you get all the benefits of activity. So we get up, we go to work, we work out, we do whatever we do, and we're active in order to get the benefits of activity. Mm-hmm. That's what attracts us to activity is what we call its upsides. But if you stay in activity long enough and don't pay attention to adequate rest, this energy continues to move around and you get to the downside of activity on that figure eight. And the downside of activity without rest is some form of burnout or muscle injury. Mm-hmm. If you get in the downside of activity, you want to then move to the upside of rest, which is the natural antidote. So you go home, you get some rest and you sleep. Now, after you've gotten some rest, you start to experience the downside of rest alone. So you're in the downside of the rest activity and you start the cycle all over again. You get up and go to work. And so on a daily basis, we oscillate through this energy system of doing some activity and then getting some rest at night and getting up. So all of us, a couple of aspects about polarities is that polarities aren't things that we, intrinsic polarities at least, are not phenomena that we can step outside of and say, I wonder if I want to engage this. Mm. For example, activity and rest. There's no place we can go and say, am I going to do activity and rest and make a decision about it? We're in some version of activity and rest throughout our life. Mm -hmm. So all of us are doing it. All of us are familiar with it. And when we talk about leveraging a polarity, our intent there is to be intentional about leveraging it for a particular purpose. So if I wanted, for example, to run a marathon, my son Tim has qualified five times for the Boston Marathon. And so when he wants to run a marathon, he has to be more intentional about this polarity of activity and rest. So when he gets up in the morning, he has a chart and he says, how far am I going to run today as I build up my capacity to run you know, 26.2 miles? Mm-hmm. So every day he's intentionally focusing on how far he's going to run. Now, he can't just get up and run. He also has to give himself downtime. So he has to engage also the rest cycle because our muscles actually develop on the rest cycle, not on the activity cycle. But they only develop on the rest cycle if we, in fact, have been active. So (laughs) that's the interdependency. So he has to also then, he schedules how much time off he's going to take Mm -hmm. and how he's going to make sure he has enough time off so his muscles can build based on the activity he's done. So what happens is you systematically look at action steps. So we create action steps to support systematic focus on activity. How far is he going to run? And he increases some every day. And on the other side, he pays attention to making sure that he gets adequate rest. Mm -hmm. So if he does a good job of that, of both increasing his activity and having adequate rest to support it, then he will end up getting to what we call the greater purpose. In this case, it would be to run a marathon. Mm -hmm. So that's what it looks like and kind of how it works. I love that. And when I go to draw it in the workshop room, I'll draw, you know, the poles are on the left and right. Mm -hmm. And then as you've been saying, the plus and the minus is the top and bottom. So you kind of draw like a grid. And then the infinity loop is what happens as you go through it. Now, I love how you talked about activity and rest because there is the balance of those things. Mm -hmm. But I also want to talk about the downside because I find that's what we get hooked on. The goal is actually to kind of manage the polarity to the point where you're on the upside of both of those. But I think where polarity management is so insightful is people start to realize, oh, okay, I've been experiencing the downside of one. Mm -hmm. I don't want to jump too far ahead here. But there is a downside to each one. And if we don't appreciate that, we can get kind of trapped in it. 
Yeah, exactly. It's a great point, Shannon. So with activity and rest, for example, if you overfocus on activity to the neglect of rest, then you get the downside of activity, which is some kind of burnout or sports mm-hmm. injury. So for example, one of the times when Tim had qualified for the Boston Marathon in Detroit, between his qualifying in Detroit and his running the Boston Marathon in Boston, he got more excited about reducing his total time for the marathon. So he overfocused on running further and harder, mm-hmm. and he didn't give himself adequate downtime in his enthusiasm to run further, and he ended up with shin fractures. Ooh. Now, that kept him out of the Boston Marathon. So the point is, if you overfocus on one pole, the reason to focus on the pole is there's a lot of great upside, so that's why you do it. But if you overfocus on that to the neglect of the other pole, you will first get the downside of the pole on which you overfocus. Mm-hmm. So you got the sports injury. Then you get the downside of the other pole as well. So the downside of rest without activity is muscle atrophy. Mm-hmm. But that's what he got because he was laid up in bed. <laughs> so the object, as you mentioned, is always to maximize both upsides. Right. There are always great upsides to each pole. And the objective is to see the need for both of them and to intentionally get those upsides and try to minimize the downsides. And one of the ways we minimize the downsides is we can identify early warnings that will let us know we're getting into those downsides so we can spend very little time in the downsides and most of our time in both upsides. Fantastic. I want to talk about some of those other tips to it, but you have so many brilliant examples of how you've used this globally, politically, you name it, you've got a wealth of experience. But just for our audience's benefit, in terms of some business examples, what are some common business polarities that people in business run into? Because there are a lot. I mean, you already mentioned focusing on individual performers, but also the team. So what are some other polarities that people could connect with in terms of how this might play out in their business life? Sure. Well, I'll give you an example, a fun one that it relates to the individual team polarity. What we talk about with the individual and team polarity is the generic term might be the part and the whole. Mm. So the part and whole polarity can be scaled up from the individual. So we can say in the part whole polarity with individual and team, the part is the individual and the team would be the collection of say you've got a 12 person team, right? Mm -hmm. So what parts want in the part whole polarity, if you're a team member, you want to have the freedom to express your own uniqueness and to take initiative to do what you're good at and able to do. Mm -hmm. That's what parts want. Now, if you, Shannon, are the team leader, Mm -hmm. you certainly want your individual team members to have that freedom and to express their uniqueness and to be creative and to take initiative on their own. At the same time, as the team lead, you want that freedom to be balanced by a sense of equality. You want all of them to feel like you're treating them as equally at some level, that they're getting equal opportunities, that they're getting equal attention and support. So you're not only paying attention to freedom, you're also paying attention to equality for the whole, within the Mm -hmm. whole. Mm -hmm. And whereas this person is wanting to pay attention to their uniqueness and have their unique contribution, you're also, as the team lead, wanting to pay attention to, well, what about our connectedness? Mm. It's not just your uniqueness, it's also our connectedness within the team. And when you want this person, this each team member, to take initiative, At the same time, you're trying to create a kind of synergy amongst the initiatives, right? Mm -hmm. So parts want freedom to express their uniqueness and to take initiative. 
those focused on the whole want equality amongst the parts, want them to be connected, and want there to be synergy. So let's imagine that you're the team lead, and you're aware of focusing on the whole pole to try and support your team, right? But now you're going into a department meeting, and you're representing your team. Well, what happens is you actually are shifting pole. Because what do you want for your team? You want your team to have the freedom to express its uniqueness as a team and to take initiative of the team without having to check with the department head. (laughs) Now, the department head, however, she or he is wanting your team to be seen as being treated equally with other teams and that your team's experiencing its uniqueness want all the teams to be connected within the department, right? And then the other level is your department head. She wants your team to take initiative as a team. And at the same time, she's trying to pay attention to how do all these teams act in a synergistic way? Is this making sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So we've scaled from the individual team to the team within a department. You can take this all the way to Canada in the United Nations. (laughs) or any other country in the United Nations. Mm -hmm. What does an individual country want in the United Nations? They want the freedom to express their uniqueness of their national culture and who they are as a country, and to be able to take initiative as a country without having to check with the UN Security Council before they act. Mm -hmm. If you're the head of the United Nations, and you're a part of the United Nations Security Council, you've got a whole other issue, and that is you want all these countries to feel like they have some sort of equality of how they're treated and respected. Mm -hmm. You also are trying to make sure that all these unique countries have some kind of connection and connectedness. That's why the UN was created. And you want us to deal with issues like global warming in a synergistic way across the planet. Mm. So the part-whole polarity now shows up at all of these levels of system. Okay, so that's background. Now let me tell you a story. So I'm on the phone. I'm talking with three people on the other end of the line. And they are the chief operating officer for this company, the chief learning officer for the company, and the director of a design team that is preparing for one week of bringing their top 200 and about 30 people from around the world to a leadership gathering in which they're going to focus on leadership, but the primary focus is just to recognize and honor the work that all of these people have done. So it's a kind of a celebration and a learning conference. Mm -hmm. They invited me to come and spend the day because they knew about polarity management and some of them within the company had used polarity thinking and they decided they wanted all their leaders to get a familiarity with this. So we're on the phone and they say, Barry, we're glad to have you and we're really excited We just wanted to have this call to make sure you knew who are the resources we're bringing in before you, who are coming after you, and what are some of the other areas of focus so you can connect to them. And we want you to be aware of the theme of the gathering. And I said, what is the theme? And they said, it's leading through values. And I said, that's just terrific because leading through values is central to polarity thinking. Within a polarity map, There are two upsides, and those are both valuable. So there's two values within any polarity map, and the objective is to affirm both of those values in order to have the company or organization be effective. And the chief operating officer wait a minute. Are you saying that values come in pairs? And I said, yes, sir, I think so. I said, for example, if I'm working with an organization that is just developing their values, I encourage them to Think of them in terms of pairs. We do this and this. 
And if they already have a list of values, then I look at the values and I see in the list, I look for whether one value in the list is actually balanced off with a sister value someplace else in the list. Mm. And I encourage them to just identify them as a pair. Now, if they don't have a pair in their list of values, then I suggest they just add it. You don't take away one of the values, but you add, what might that pair be? I suggest that would be helpful. And he says, wait a minute. If you're going to be messing with our values in top of our top 230 so people, he said, I want to know what you would do with it. And he said, do you have a fax machine? This will tell you how far back it was, right? (laughs) And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, I'm going to send you our values right now because I want to see what you would do with them. So they sent me a list. Now, on the list, there were about five or six values that were articulated. One of them was autonomous business units. We value the autonomy of our business units. Now, this organization was a multinational organization located in 46 countries. So anybody would recognize the name if I shared it. So it's obvious if you're going to be located in 46 countries, you need to provide some autonomy for these business units that are spread out all over the place. So it made sense. So I looked at the list. I saw autonomous business units. And just as a quick guess, what would you imagine, Shannon, what would you imagine you'd look for in that list of values that would be a good complement, a good supplement to autonomy of your business units? What would be a self-correction necessary to keep autonomous business units from becoming problematic? Something about centralized, collective, integrated, aligned. Yeah, exactly. Great. And it's fun because we haven't planned this, so it's great. (laughs) So I was looking for those things as well. Integrated, coordinated business units, centralized, etc. None of that showed up in their values. So I pointed that out to them. I said, well, I notice you've got autonomous business units, but you don't have anything like coordinated or integrated centralized or something like that as a value. And it was pretty obvious when you look at the list, there was nothing like it, you know. And they said, okay, so what do you make of that? And I said, well, I said, your organization is experiencing or will experience the following dysfunctions. Now, I'd like you to just estimate, again, what you would imagine. And I'd like people who are listening to be thinking about if you had a company that was focusing on autonomous business units as a left pole, And on the right pole, they weren't paying attention to centralized, coordinated, or integrated business units. What is the vulnerability they're likely to experience? If you overfocus autonomy to the neglect of coordination or integration, what would that look like in the organization? What comes to mind for you, Shannon? Oh, my goodness. Rogue is the word that comes to mind. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Rogue. Yeah. People doing business very different ways. Yeah. Probably inconsistency is the word that would come to mind. Inconsistency, it can be in delivery, it can be in service, it can be in quality standards, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. Also, inconsistencies in terms of who you bring on the team, when and how you let go of people. Our term is front stage, backstage. So I can see a whole bunch of front stage disconnects and not being consistent across the countries. But then also how they treat the team, you know, and how internally they run, you know, and centralized processes make sense. And into individualized country applications make sense. But if you don't have both, then you're going to definitely experience the downside. Great summation. Now, so I shared essentially what you said. You know, there's a vulnerability here. In a polarity map, it shows up as the downside of autonomous business units. There are great upsides. We'll get to those later. But if you focus on autonomous business units to the neglect of that other pole, you get the downsides. It doesn't make anybody a bad person, but it does 
undermine the effectiveness of the organization. So I said your organization is going to you know, experience this lack of integration, excess competition, mm. et cetera, everything that you mentioned. But I didn't stop there. I said, now at some point in time, your organization is going to consider this a problem. Mm. You know, this lack of coordination, lack of integration, redundancies, inefficiencies. You're going to call that a problem. When you see that, what you're going to do is you're going to bring your executive team and all your business unit heads together, and you are going to decide that you need to do something about this. You need to, quote, solve this problem. So I said, when you do, I said, this is what you're going to do to respond to this problem. And what do you think I might have mentioned to them that they will do as a self-correction, which would, by the way, be the upside of centralized coordination or integrated business units? What would be in the upside? Well, upsides would be creating consistent standards, making sure that, again, the word consistency is the only one I can think of right now, but things were integrated, that communication systems were put in place. By the way, just even before you keep going, the fact you can use it after seeing five to six value statements and be able to be so incredibly predictive is phenomenal. How cool is this? This has been part one of my interview with Dr. Barry Johnson. Part two is coming up on the next episode.